Hey everybody, welcome to another Commission Podcast. We have a doozy today. Oh yeah, we do. This is like my favorite type, the one that I've not personally seen all the way through, but I know uh. it's going to be good, and I've heard so much about. Uh, this is 1980 Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, starring Jack my... Nicholson and uh, Shelley Duvall. Yes, Robert Duvall's daughter. Uh, That's not no, true. <laughs> not true. Danny Lloyd has the kid. Yeah. Scatman Crothers as Dick. Uh-huh. This is one of those movies that I, I, I've said this a bunch of, of late, but I feel like I've seen it because there's so many things yeah. that are parried and lampooned and, you know, also that um, I think it's the Entertainment Channel, the E! Channel did the top 100 scary movies of all time that I used to mm. watch many years ago. And, you know, this always ranked in the top ten, so a lot of yeah. the really scary, like the naked lady in the bathtub sequence I was aware of. But there's a lot of stuff, and, you know, of course, here's Johnny shit. Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff was a surprise. And also just how well made the movie is. Like, I, mm-hmm. I feel like I've been inspired to go back and watch all of the Kubrick films now. Cause yeah, I've you seen, should, man. He is so re- good. Like, recently I saw Eyes Wide Shut again. Uh, I've now seen The Shining, of course, 2001. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Doc, Dr. Strangelove. Um clockwork orange but i you know those are the big ones but i know that there's a whole bunch of other ones that i haven't seen yeah i guess the other big one you haven't seen which is up next for our commissions is full metal jacket full metal jacket which i have not seen all the way through an epic in its own right (laughs) yeah so i'm excited to to and we're that's the next one i think so we're having like a mini stanley kubrick film festival yeah i'm fine with that eat your heart out eric (laughs) you're direct we're taking over the direct that's right we're 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 matching you you know uh kubrick for tarantino (laughs) Uh what are you going to do you're messing around edgar right we went right to tarantino uh, this was made possible. This was another one of our fabulous community commission podcasts, which is uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of our VIP Club Bald Move members got together as a cabal, and they <laughs> voted on what they thought would be the most interesting films for us to commission. And then we sold shares of that movie for ten bucks a piece. And once we sold thirty of them, boom, we pulled it off the shelf in this commission podcast. So special thanks to Ginny of Breaking Bad Fan Fest fame. She was oh, along with yeah. Miguel uh, helped organize the whole thing. We had a great great time. Ryan Lamb, Martin O.R. These people I don't have their real names, just their um, I you know I solicited feedback from everybody, only a few responded. Mm-hmm. Martin O.R.U. Pity Pity Pila, <laughs> Coral One Eight Two, and More Reach Browser Ten Sixty Four. Uh, right. Both of those returned from the last com- community. All those names inspiring, very serious discussion about a very serious movie. They are <laughs> they're, they're spreading spreading the uh, the 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 love out there. So. Um, the community feedback was overwhelming. We need to discuss the movie Room 237. I, which, saw, I saw it a long time ago. I'd, we'll get to. It's, it's been a while since I've even seen The Shining. Like, I, this is one of my favorite all-time horror movies. Okay. But I haven't seen it in, other than, you know, yesterday when we watched it, I haven't, hadn't seen it in years and years. Yeah. Uh, maybe f- seven, seven years? Yeah. And, I, again, and then I've, I watched Room 237, like, right Right after it came out, mm-hmm. which I think was like 2012, yep. 2013, something like that. Exactly. Uh, so it's been a while since I've seen that. It's as funny well. because I remember Grantland going crazy over Room Two Thirty Seven. You know, this, this everybody did, yeah. Site. But I, you know, that was my pulp, pulp culture go to site. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading a lot of essays and thinking, man, this seems really interesting. I, I've got to put, I got to watch The Shining so I can watch of this course. movie. Yeah. 
And here's what what's weird is that I, you know, some some movies, you know, I watch once, some I watch twice, some I do more or less research. It depends on how personally interesting. Here's the deal: I watched The Shining, I watched the Room Two Thirty Seven. It took me four hours to watch the movie yep. Two Thirty Seven because every five minutes I paused and did research on the internet to verify claims <laughs> and to decide for myself which of this stuff was interesting, which of it was bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I just... There's yeah, Aaron I, Googling, was the moon landing fake? <laughs> it turns out it was. Oh, man. It was. Jeez. Um, no, and, and I probably did another two hours of reading on it on top of that. Uh-huh. I just went, you know, I, I think that's a hallmark of a Kubrick film is... More than meets the eye. He's the Transformers... Of movie directors. To the extent that it's a lot like, you know, Ginny made the Breaking Bad analogy because Villigan, the Villigan himself used a, a lot of inspiration from the films uh, in his his, his, his series. Hmm. Um, but a, I thought it shared a lot of the same similarities where when you have a creator who is very smart and savvy and has this rich visual history that you know he has at his command... That not only does he get the credit for the things he does intentionally, which is you know more careful and thoughtful than your average director mm-hmm. or your average showrunner, but I feel like it also comes together where people start seeing things that they find meaning in that are not there. Yeah, which as Room Two Thirty Seven, it kind of closes with a ten minute argument about you know is this all bullshit or does this mean something? And I guess it's one of the tenets of postmodern criticism that. Any imagery with meaning in a work, regardless of whether it's intentional or not, still retains that meaning and power because the director can't say, oh, well, you, you know, you know about Christ images, but you don't know about the tragedy of the Native Americans in, 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 mm-hmm. in the, the, the strife that the white man brought to their, their continents. You can't, the director can't make the artificial divide. If someone has that personal experience with the material and it speaks to them that way, that's just as valid as the stuff that he wanted you to get. Yeah, it may not have been intended, yeah. but it's still going to be perceived. So I feel like I'm getting weighed into 237 before we need to. Well, uh, I, I mean, so I, I also did a, a lot of reading on this. Um, uh, I read some interviews with Kubrick himself that were contemporary with the movie's release, uh, which I felt were fairly enlightening for the end of this movie because – Honestly, I had a lot of, like, me being kind of, you know, a little more rational and thinking going into this, the Shining thing, thinking that this was not necessarily a supernatural horror film, uh, the the final shot confused me hmm. quite a bit. And after reading an interview, but there uh, a couple some, of interviews There with are some him, unmistakable supernatural happenings in this film. That's the thing, yeah. And, and I never quite understood, like, how... How Jack could be in both time periods, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and after reading an interview with Stanley Kubrick, I think I have deciphered that puzzle a little bit, which we'll talk about okay. when we get there. But I, I did a lot of reading, um, both st- stuff that Stanley Kubrick has said himself and also a lot of the analysis that people have done. And I, like I uh-huh. said, I've seen Room 237, so a lot of it ties into that. But there, there's other stuff, too. Um, at some point, like... I just have to throw up my hands and say, look, this film has been out for 35 years. People have been analyzing the shit out of it for that period of time. The four or five hours of research I'm going to do can't scratch the surface. So no. what do you do? I mean... It's another movie. Like I think feel like this with all the Kubrick works. Is this another one that 
you know, for different reasons than the God, like I could watch the Godfather again and again and again. A lot of Kubrick movies are like that, but for different reasons, not because they're just yeah. sheer absorbing and entertaining, but just because you get so much more depth out of each individual time you watch it. Like you can just spend like, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to watch what's in the background because he uses these, you know, uh-huh. infamous depth of field that just captures everything. There's, there's very little separation between the foreground and the background because he wants you to notice these things. Yeah. And a lot of the times when, when I go into stuff like this and we have discussions where people have theories that I would label uh, overthought or a little too intense, probably crazy. I throw up my hands and I say, fuck that. That's Mm. ridiculous. All of it is bullshit. Uh, There are a few directors who I don't do that with, like Uh a Stanley Kubrick or Christopher Nolan, like those types of guys who I know are intelligent and are thinking about their stories and how it, how it all plays out as they're making these films versus like, you know, crank. I'm not going to go into crank yeah. and say, Oh, look at the, the flower vendor in the background. Sure, oh, sure. it must be a love story. No. Although I, I will <laughs> say this about Nolan and I love Christopher Nolan. I have a lot of respect for him. I, I love Minto. I love inception. I love bat all those. Yeah. Uh, so take this just as a, an esteem for Kubrick. I feel like Nolan makes a lot of stuff that has superficial complexity mm-hmm. and you go and you watch it one or two times and, and you're like, Oh my God, there's so much like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm on it. This is the time I'm going to sit down and watch Memento to make sense. And you actually watch it that second or maybe third time. Like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. I've got everything now. Yeah. No. So I think, whereas this, this Kubrick stuff yeah. is like a fucking Rubik's cube. Every time you twist it, 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 it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, there's a couple things I can easily dismiss because sure. I feel like they conflict with reality. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's a lot of other things where it's like, shit, I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he did mean this as a uh, some kind of apology to Native Americans or as a yeah, way yeah. to indirectly deal with his angst about the Holocaust. Fuck, I, maybe he did. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I make the distinction between those two uh, – where, like, I would say Christopher Nolan is more plot-oriented, and the twists and turns that he does are structured around a plot. They're mechanical, whereas, rather it, than almost spiritual or emotional. Or psychological. I psychological, mean, yeah, it's better. Uh, Stanley Kubrick is trying to play with the audience and the actor's emotions mm-hmm. um, while he's filming his movies and in the work he creates. And it's it's a different type of thing, but I feel like they're both thinking about these things in a way that gives me a respect for them. That, sure. that encourages me to dig a little deeper into their films. Yeah. Um, I thought that it might be, since this is the first time I saw the movie, I thought it might be interesting if I just talk about, like, some things that initially struck me or some preconceptions that I had that okay. were dispelled. For example, like, you know, I was seen the over-the-top, you know, the corpse woman and the here's Johnny, and I thought uh-huh. this movie would be a lot more violent. Sure. Um, That's when reasonable. really the only death that occurs besides Jack Nicholson's exposure death um, yeah. is the, the, the chef. Halloran. Yeah. Dick Halloran. Yeah. Um, but like even from the opening shots, this movie is incredible. Like I was not prepared to start on that just helicopter shot zooming in on that island in the middle of the lake. And then, you know, one of the things in room 237 that one the guy talks about is like this this point of view is like this, like a, the, the, the point of view of like an angel, like, or like a, 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 a wild animal or a force of nature that's just kind of roving its eye all about the earth. And it slowly centers on, you know, Jack Nicholson or Jack's car. Uh, car. Yeah. And like, it just gives you this unsettling, like, this is something we shouldn't be seeing. We're seeing something be stalked. 
Um, and it just sure. really draws you in. And that music that is turns out is a funeral dirge. It's mm. called Judgment Day. It's just brr, brr, brr in the background with this like glass breaking and kind of scattering across a metal surface sound underlaying too. Just everything yeah. fills you with like, oh shit, this is not going to be right. Yeah, so I I think in this movie the soundtrack does the majority of the heavy lifting uh, yeah. to to create both suspense and terror. Yeah. Uh, I heard that there was some sort of synth, like, I, I don't know what style it was, but a synth track that that they scrapped halfway through this. And we're like, let's go with some more classical music type stuff and throw in these weird noises and sure. things like that. Uh, I don't know if you take the soundtrack out of this uh-huh. if it works nearly as well. It's hard to like you know A B and test because I when you uh, yeah. say that I'm like God damn I kind of would like to hear that original synth track just to compare and contrast yeah. like would uh-huh. that make it feel very like because that's that's like more the, like a Halloween type thing I mean or... that's that's the staple of 80s horror right. schlock is the synth soundtrack yeah uh, and it's like I wonder if that would make it feel more of a piece to that rather than almost a timeless classic yeah yeah I I don't even know like I was watching it you know again for the first time. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and I that's the thing that I noted. Like I don't know if these scenes even work without mm-hmm. that music. The other thing like, is they're like, not scary in and of themselves necessarily. I was also not prepared for how brilliant the young child actor was that was playing Danny Lloyd is fantastic. Yeah, who's actually Danny in the the the, the, the right. movie? Yeah, you got Jack playing Jack and Danny playing <laughs> Danny and uh-huh. Shelley playing. Not Shelley. Which don't read into that. Stanley Kubrick himself <laughs> said that's a coincidence. All all of those. Well, he name, would say that. He would, of course. He would yeah, say that. That's he's the a, key to the moon landing hoax right there. Uh-huh. Um, but I thought, like, I couldn't believe how good he was. And I don't know how Kubrick got some of the shit out of him. Like, some of the looks of pure horror and, like, the yeah. things where he's, like, letting drool hang out of his mouth and shit. And even, like... You know, I've seen that, like, Red Rum, Red, and, like, Weird Al's UHF makes reference to it. And I'm like, how is that ever going to be effective? But it really is. Totally. It really sells you on this child being kind of like a haunted, I mean, it's a Haley Joe Osment in The Sixth Sense kind of performance. Whereas if he's anything yeah. less than completely convincing and vulnerable, and you don't buy the basic terror of having... You're a six, seven-year-old little boy, and your daddy is insane, and he's trying to kill you. Uh-huh. Like, if you can't carry that convincingly, it just doesn't work. And he carries it like a champ. He does. Like, I yeah. worry, Like I don't – did that kid go on to do other things? Because I kind of want to – that's one I thing I was you. on my notes to research, and I ran out of time. But I'm like, did is he okay? Like, anytime I see a kid that young do shit like that, I'm like, that kid's seen some shit. Or Kubrick psychologically tormented him until he shaped him into the vessel of <laughs> right, yeah. of distress and anguish. That I that would we, believe, right? Uh-huh. Because that's another thing. Get Take one hundred and forty-seven. Get right, it right, Danny. That's right. More drool. Uh, so apparently, I'm looking on the IMDb here. His only acting credits are The Shining and a made-for-TV movie, the audio autobiography of G. Gordon Liddy in 1982. So two years he did a TV movie, and that's it. Huh. And he's not in like a psychiatric ward. I don't think so. I don't know. Uh, God forbid, uh, engage in the. Uh, he made acts the of room two thirty seven. He made that <laughs> film. Uh, but I just couldn't fucking believe how incredible uh, he was. Yeah. 
And, you know, and it's like let's let's this... continue on the the arc of of the performances because sure there has been a lot of talk about both Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall's performances in this movie uh, uh, from from the likes of Stephen King even. Well, I want to talk about Stephen King towards the end uh, or whenever we okay. get to a, a lull here because uh, I have a lot to say about that too. Uh, like specifically in regard to the acting and his opinion on everything on that or everything. I think everything about Stephen King's opinion on The Shining is utterly fascinating. Okay, and I could probably spend a half hour just talking about. It. I don't know if you're going to be that interested in it, but uh, sure. Let's let's talk about Jack Nicholson first. All right, seeing Jack Nicholson in this movie, I've always thought that his The Joker was pretty good, and I feel like that <laughs> maybe the Heath Ledger dying kind of unfairly blew his Joker off the map. But after seeing this movie, I'm actually pissed off at his lazy Joker performance. Yeah, like he could have played, he could have dialed that way back and been way more effective. I, I just, you yes. know, he was a full on cartoon. Where in this, it's like that that look he gives right after he imbibes that uh, Jack Daniels for the first time, the, the first, fake Jack yeah. Daniels. Mm-hmm. That is a homicidal crazy man look. <laughs> sure. It's like viscerally terrifying just mm-hmm. how he kind of like does the half like it, it's almost like a demonic possession. He's amazing. He's a force of nature. Yeah. So there's um there's a documentary that was produced alongside this this movie. <laughs> how many uh, documentaries have been made about The Shining? No, no, no. I mean like a behind the scenes. Oh, really? Footage thing where Something Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick. Yeah, himself. I, th- I think he had Vivian Kubrick, his daughter. Oh shit. Uh, filming the thing. Okay. Uh, or at least parts of it. Uh, isn't that in Room 237? Like, they use a lot of footage from it, don't they? I don't... I mean, I don't... I saw some footage. Like, the best thing in Room 2... Well, the best uh, behind-the-scenes footage is Jack Nicholson warming himself up to do yeah. the axe take. Sure. And there's Johnny. this guy on set that's, like, the set manager, and he's, like, visibly flinches away from Jack because he's got the axe, and he, he just kind of hefts it, and he, the guy's like, oh, shit. And <laughs> Jack's he, lost it. Yeah, yeah, no. Stanley's pushed him too he, far. And it's not, it's not an act. He, like, j- j- you can see him recoil from this yeah. from Jack Nicholson picking up this axe, just, you know, getting himself amped up for the scene. That's the thing. Like, he, he you know, Stanley Kubrick has a reputation. He did this yeah. to, uh, to uh, Scott what's his face in in Dr. Strangelove where he fucked with the actor he'd say like okay do a couple takes yeah that mm-hmm. was good now humor me and do a crazy one yeah and then he'd use that in the fucking final cut yeah right and George C. Scott would be like oh man yeah yep uh so here he did these takes over and mm-hmm. over and over 60 100 times he'd mm-hmm. do a take and he did this to Jack Nicholson during some of these scenes and I think that's why you get those over the top performances. Like I, I was he's reading, just he's he kind is. of like he's in, tired. He's yeah, he's lost his own fucking mind. And Stanley right. Kubrick has driven him to it. But I, I read also a, um, another interview with someone who was on set at the time, uh, like a set director or something like that. And he uh. was saying Jack would would nail the first few takes. I mean, in his opinion, uh-huh. he would be terrifying and menacing. And then Stanley Kubrick would just continue to push him and say, bigger, louder, with your mouth open. Right. That sort of thing. Sure. And and he would eventually end up using those takes, and those are not the ones that this guy would have used, like the editor. Right. Uh, which surprised me. I don't know why he does that. Why does he... Like, I understand it in a Doctor Strangelove. It's a satire. No, but I've heard him the same thing that he kind of tried to break Tom Cruise, and I also read a review by the guy who plays the Russian guy in Everything Ever Seen. His his real name is, like, uh, Rade Serbedgia. 
Um, okay. I, I'm, that's a but, complete butcher. And he's, yeah, I'm he's, sure. He's from Croatia, uh, Yugoslavia, it seems like. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, he But why, mentioned... why would he do that in this film? Like... Well, I mean, if you want a truly deranged performance, you have to get the actor to be willing to... I mean, I think there's even guys like uh, Jack Nicholson probably have a certain level of reserve and self-respect and self-image that even as, as fine sure. actors, as, as, as crazy as they are and able to submerge themselves in these performances, there's still some of that... Maybe it's only Kubert that can see it, but it's like I still see a veneer of civility, or there's something like you're, you know, you only give me ninety percent of what you're capable of, yeah. and by giving them the freedom to just like do all these takes and like you know whatever, like what is what can I do that's going to set this apart from the other ninety nine? I think it it puts. So I've always read in like uh, these BDSM literature like okay. you know you know that's that's mm-hmm. the kinky sex bonded master yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey yeah. got it. No, uh, but I've always seen that there's like, you know, it's like, cause I was like, you know, why do submissives or masochists like being hurt? And I guess there's this concept, this thing called subspace where you can actually induce this mental, like almost a hypnotic, uh, state in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people desire that kind of like, you know, it's a trippy experience. And I almost wonder if he's kubrick by putting these actors through these extreme things that he's tapping into that kind of like weird mental reboot states to to get these kind of deranged inhuman performances and that's the other thing it's like so room 237 showed that like kubrick really likes the crazy looking look like and they show like four different movies where a male yeah, performer I... does the jack nicholson crazy thing mm-hmm. and yeah, so that's interesting because there's also another comment from Kubrick in an interview somewhere. Uh, a, a lot of this comes from an interview that I read uh, w- with Michael Cement, I think. Yeah. C-I-M-E-N-T uh, that he did in 1980. And he was talking about, like, actors can only do one thing. And if actors are thinking about their dialogue, they're not thinking about their performance. Ah. And so maybe that's part of the reason he does this is to ingrain the dialogue, ingrain that scene in them so, so thoroughly that they don't have like to think memory, about it. And right. now they're paying attention to what emotions am I conveying? And sure. he says that he did this with Jack Nicholson to get those types of reactions you're seeing at the bar where you right. can see 15 different things going on in Jack Nicholson's right. head because he's actively thinking about what is my character thinking, not what am I going to say next? Well, that's the other thing is like, I, w- I thought this was going to be a much more Jack Nicholson-y performance than I... I mean, there's definitely that, but, like, yeah. you know, the... Kind of his late-stage Christian Slater doing a bad Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Sure. Yeah, uh-huh. man, they're going to... I did... A lot of that was absent. Yeah. It was a much more natural, although, again, still, you know, Jack Nicholson. I mean, I think that's one of the... If you want to talk a little bit about the Stephen King... You know, him saying that this guy's clearly crazy from the first time we see him on camera. I agree with that a lot, but also Jack Nicholson, when he smiles, seems like a crazy person. That's the thing. I like think when he's it's just there Jack Nicholson's sunglasses face. on the front row of the Oscars yeah. or the L.A. Lakers, and he's giving everybody this wolfish grit. Uh-huh. It, he looks like a crazy person. The man has crazy teeth and eyebrows. What do you want? And a face. Like I don't know yeah. what I met. I feel like that hanging out with Jack Nicholson is probably a terrifying experience. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, and kind it's of probably like, a cocaine kind of, bender. In the same way, it's like I've always been morbidly fascinated, like what it'd be like to hang out with Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, God. Because who knows what you're oh, going to get God. up to. But yeah. I don't think Hunter's an especially imposing or intimidating person. Yeah. Like, you get all that with Jack Nicholson, plus a man who even at, what is he, 97 <laughs> years old, he uh-huh. still looks capable of just getting up and stabbing with a pair of scissors. Mm-hmm. Both and mentally that's if he and likes physically. you. Yeah, that's yeah. if he's smiling at you. If he's actually <laughs> looking pissed, then good God, you're, it's time to get the brown pants on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't know why. I guess, I don't know. It seemed like he did start that a bit early in the film, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, there's There are a couple of cuts where you get like chapter breaks almost, where he'll say like, uh, closing day or one month in. I like those. Yeah, but but... So I guess that may be why I feel like he kind of abruptly started going insane. It's because of those cuts. You go you, from you, a scene... Man, I just vehemently disagree that there's anything sudden or... Like, I felt like that it was a very slow descent that you could chart into kind of craziness. Well, they jump in one month and he... I, I guess you have to chalk this up to the history between him and Wendy. Uh, he's very irrationally angry at Wendy. Like, right off the bat. Boom. Mm. Like, they've been in this hotel for a month. Uh, it's coming right off the back of this driving scene where they're coming up here and getting the tour. Sure. Uh, it just feels a little abrupt in the movie, although I think in the timeline of the film, oh, it, yeah. it makes sense. Oh, yeah, because it goes a month, and then it's like a couple yeah. days later after that. And I think that's another... I get the impression that those days are not sequential days. I think they're... I thought they were. But... I think there's space between them more than a couple days or a week. But now that I'm aware that this movie uh, plays a lot with your spatial orientation, it yeah. would also be fitting for it to play a lot with your temporal yeah. uh, placement as well. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me to understand that those things are intentionally misleading or, or whatnot. And, you know, that's all par for the course. Um, sure. I also... The other thing... I was looking at this hotel. I'm like, I remember thinking midway through, and I ask you, I'm like, is this hotel for real that they're filming in? Because there's no. something that was just off about it. Like, something about the rooms and how they're connected, and, like, I couldn't imagine this being a real place. And you're like, mm. I think the hotel is real, but all the sets are on a soundstage? Yeah, he built it's, this whole fucking thing. It's crazier than that. Yeah. Like, there is a few establishing shots of the hotel proper that's with Which a is, big, massive, middle kind of, you know, A-frame lodge part. Yeah, the Stanley Hotel is the, the exterior. But they actually built the uh, another exterior. And the way they film it is, like, it doesn't have the TP in the middle, and you can see that. Mm-hmm. But it's the one that has, like, the hedge maze and all that stuff. They actually yeah. built a whole real exterior in all those rooms as sets. Why would they do that? Uh, well, probably because of the. I imagine it's because of the hedge maze, right? Because that's all fake. I mean, build the fucking hedge maze. Don't build a hotel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. You, I mean, I, don't I know it's all made out of cardboard. That's and bubble right. gum, but sure. Still, that's got to be expensive. I imagine, especially since if it was only for the sake of a few shots, where you're just trying to like yeah. make people feel uneasy. But there, I mean, I'm just saying what was said in the <laughs> documentaries and the stuff I, I, okay. I read. Sure. Um, the other thing I thought was always I would be ridiculous is the kid riding a trike through this the hotel. 
Oh, see, I'm I'm putting myself in Danny's shoes there, and I'm going. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. To sure, me as a five year old. Well, no, no, I'm. The, but I'm saying like, when, you know, that's one of the most often parodied parts of the film. But when you see it in context, it starts mm. off, of course, like, well, yeah. I mean, because my first thought is like, you're really bringing a seven year old to a hotel with just his mother and you for yeah. five months. Yeah, like. That's what I guess as a father I started seeing the sinister nature of Jack much earlier on. Like he was just a fundamentally selfish yes. person. And I think that's part that's a huge part of the movie that a lot of people overlook. Yeah. Just yeah. who Jack is and yeah. the relationship he has with his family. Which is another reason why I think it pisses off Stephen King, which, again, uh-huh. we'll get to. Absolutely. Uh, but I thought that the, it works on all those levels. Like, the first scene of him just riding laps around the hotel that's just unbroken. You can hear the difference in his wheels hitting the carpet and versus the yeah. floor. It just, like... It just puts you in the space. And, may, again, it helps sell, like, you know, Danny and, his, and, mm-hmm. and, and the rest of his kind of, like, you know, childhood. But then... As the movie gets deeper and his rides become differently spatially oriented and, like, as these documentaries help me appreciate that they're actually going up ascending levels in the (laughs) hotel and the plots are getting twisted and he takes Uh one turn that actually shouldn't be able to take in reality and the fucking carpets are switching on him. Yeah. You realize that this is a story. It's like this isn't a gag. It's a storytelling device. Uh Uh-huh. It's as much dialogue as what the characters are saying. Yeah, and I I think... To me, all of that stuff is supposed to, A, confuse you um, because this is a very disorienting situation. The isolation of it all is is part of that. Uh, but it's supposed to also reflect, be reflected in the maze outside, right? The hotel is as much a maze as the maze, the actual literal maze outside. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can we talk about the chef's house? What? His porn? His 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 art? What is that's the thing that feels porn jarring. This movie, I know, but he's just got these foxy-looking black ladies with preposterously large afros everywhere in his apartment. What's wrong with that? He's a ladies' Who man. Who is this guy? The ladies' man. Yeah, completely. but does that? But if <laughs> I don't, I mean, is that what you do if you're a single sixty-year-old black man? I don't know. I've never been a single sixty-year-old black man. Is that like if you're if you're single and you end up being sixty, you just get weird with it? Why not? Like, you Why wear not? lounge suits, and you air your feet out, and you watch the news on Miami, and sure. you, when you feel like you it, shine. you jerk off to one of the mini posters that you got hung up in your bedroom. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was, <laughs> like, you know, and I'm trying, because here's the thing that's tripped me out about it, is I'm trying to analyze this with the rigor that I've started to look at all the rest of the film, and sure. I'm like, what yeah. does all this fucking mean? Mm-hmm. Why would you have this extreme depiction of this man? Like, what is it supposed to say about his relationship with Danny and his ability to shine and his his role as kind of savior by proxy? Because the only reason he mattered at all in the film is because he drove a snowplow there. Yeah, pretty like, much. Everything else, he's just he's just dog meat. Uh, yeah. I I it I think it's super interesting, and no one talks about it. I didn't see. A single thing about talking about, like, his living quarters and how kind of weird they were, to my yeah. eyes. Anyway. Yeah, no, I saw a talk of the other porn that's, that's throughout Like, Eddie film. Murphy's character in Coming to America, he absolutely sets up his place like that. Okay. I, I just, I don't know. Tim Meadows. Tim, yeah, the yes. ladies' man, that's absolutely. That's just how Tim Meadows lives. Like, I mean, that's uh, not Bill even Clinton has an apartment looking like yep. that? I believe it. Yep. This guy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, strange. I also thought like one of the th- subtle crazy clues in the movie that I guess turns out to be nothing is when Jack Nicholson comes to the 
bar for the second time, and there's actually a party going on. A woman walks by, and it looks like she had a bloody handprint on her ass. <laughs> on okay. subsequent viewing, that's just a pattern of her dress. All right. But I thought like we were going <laughs> to start panning over and seeing people dismember. Like That was just like our first clue that's... You know, I thought they're, they're going to have the guys with the head splits open and all that stuff a lot earlier in the film. Hmm. Uh, I've got a, I've got the kind of biggest question for you. Okay, what do you think this movie's about? <laughs> That's a hard <laughs> question to answer because it could be about okay, the plight of the Native Americans. Let's it could say be this: about the, the plot. Let, could... Let's go. Let's stick to the plot and say, what do you think happens at this hotel? I think this hotel, this, and and that's kind of where I agree. Maybe we can talk about Stephen King at this point because I feel like the plot of this movie is essentially cabin fever and what isolation and loneliness hmm. uh, and desperation can do to somebody. I used uh, to think that. I think it can't possibly be that. Now. Okay, what do you think it's about? Uh, I think it's about a supernatural force. Um calling the people who are ripe for this type of mayhem to it and executing on its nefarious plans. I think that I think that Jack Torrance is just the latest in a string of people who have been called to this hotel like a Charles Grady or whatever his name is, DeWalt Grady or something like that, the guy in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, those may not even be the same people. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they're not, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, those people have been called to this hotel, and the hotel is exerting its will upon weak, fearful uh, failures of people. I had a joke theory that every year they have a new caretaker come up there. Every year the witch seduces them, them in the bathroom, and then every year she laughs at their penis. <laughs> and some guys like, eh, whatever, you know, and, and, and it's like, I, I, it's, it's emotion in the ocean, whatever. And and then every it's once in a while, here. you get a dude that just can't handle it, and he goes on a yeah. homicidal rampage. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's self conscious. He's always not been been afraid of his uh, performance in the sack, and he watches too much porn with the uh, crazy uh-huh. large lungs. But but he goes on a he can't can't handle it can't handle it. <laughs> so Dick obviously he could handle it. Sure, yeah, no problem. Yeah, he just laughs it off. Dick lives in room two thirty seven, <laughs> and, and during the season, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, he. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but no, that's so. But, so I think the ending of of the movie tries to obfuscate that and also tries to give it away. I think by showing it, Jack Nicholson in that picture at the end, <clears throat> they're they're sending a fairly confusing message. Um, because I thought it was always literally supposed to be him in 1921. I don't think that's the case. Well, I think that's, that's what my question to you was: Was Jack Nicholson in that picture at the beginning of the movie? I don't think he's ever in that picture. I mean, I think he's he may be in that picture, but it's not necessarily the character Jack Torrance that is in that picture. I think it's a representation of all the people who over the years have been called by this hotel. Yeah. Uh, Jack's just the latest one, and he goes in that picture. So now I know what you mean by plot. Okay. Um, Because And then also this makes me feel a little bit better about the Stephen King stuff because I feel like uh, evil, bad places that are just bad because of it 
because of just existing, are a big part of Stephen King's work. Yeah. Although Dick doesn't seem to believe that. He seems to believe that, you know, people are like, or places are like people. You know, they got some bad, some good, all this other stuff. And depending on what you bring into the hotel is what you draw out. But I here's my interpretation of the picture. Okay. I feel like that, you know, with all the, you know, you can get arty with this and saying, oh, it's all this Native American influence. One of the Native American beliefs was pictures steal their soul. Hmm. That this okay. is in, this is you know a sim symbolism of this hotel stealing Jack's soul. Okay, and now he's going to be one of the ones that are there forever, and this is kind of an alpha and omega situation. Yeah, there's so much that supports that, right? Like that right. discussion with Grady in the bathroom, right? Where he's saying, "I'm not the caretaker; you're the caretaker," and the caretaker has always been here. Sure, it's uh, very 1984. We've always been at war with East Asia. Yeah, but I don't think it's literal. I don't think it's literally Jack Torrance, the man, has always been here. Uh, in 1921 and in 1980, uh, I, I think it's more of like a a spiritual sort of thing. Like yeah. that type of person has always been here. Okay. Um, and there's some some other stuff to kind of support the supernatural theory that this is not all psychological. Uh, in that interview I was talking about with Michael Cement, it's uh, there's a comment from Stanley Kubrick about what he liked about The Shining and what drew him to it as a as a project. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking about the book here and okay. he said he he really liked how it structured its narrative so that you went into it thinking oh well this is clearly a psychological thriller it's mm-hmm. it's about a man g- with cabin fever going mm-hmm. insane and killing his family sure. but then at at one point in the movie it clearly and indisputably pulls that rug out from under you and says no this is supernatural yeah and i think the moment he's talking about is that door into the pantry that is opened there's also the ball that gets rolled over to the little boy there's that. Um, yeah. Now, one alternate theory is that the only supernatural thing is Danny. And Danny mm-hmm. is subconsciously making all the other. He's making his parents see his worst fears. He is, psych, you know, telekinetically manipulating the lock of the door. Why? Be- well, so the I, so I guess it's interesting is that while he's foaming at the mouth and doing all that stuff and, and he's contacting uh, Dick, this is also the point where... You know, Jack Nicholson's being locked in the or being set free in the closet, and the, some of the other stuff. Like when he's in this fugue state. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no literal contextual support. That's just an alternate theory on what's happening. Like it could be ghosts, uh-huh. or it could be this one little boy who's been abused and has this power he doesn't understand, and it's kind of like a you know a carry type of lashing out at the people tormenting him. That like he. Yeah, he's okay. trying to get his father killed, hmm. but you know he's he's clumsily using his power to do so. Or I, 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 I you know, yeah. I, this this is I'm only ten hours into the whole Shining experience. At this yeah, point. no, not thirty five. So years. not everything yeah. is all <laughs> fully baked. Uh, but I thought that was an interesting possible explanation that would kind of you don't have to go to ghosts or multiples because you got you already have a, a telekinetic boy, mm-hmm. and then you're adding ghosts. Yeah. And then you're adding ghosts manipulating physical objects, whereas if you just go with the boy causing all this, that might cause other problems, but it does clean up things up in an Occam's Razor type of yeah, way. Yeah, I wish I had read The Shining. Um, I'm going to. I, I probably will. Buddy, I'm this, going honestly. to, because I'm fired, up, I'm, I'm fired up to read it. I've got Audible credits, so sure. I'll probably go in there and just That'd probably be the, the way to go, too. Yeah. I wonder if Stephen King reads it. That'd be great. Uh, Is he a good reader? I don't know. I don't know. But he would probably know the proper inflection. I remember when he got locked in. So we we didn't... 
We didn't talk about. So how do you think that door gets unlocked? Danny unlocks it. No, I, like, I think during I think that the, theory. Like, yeah, is that what he, they're speculating? He's like you know, Firestarter carries. He can do manipulation of matter with his mind. Okay, and he does it so that he will die in the maze later. Uh, Instead of being arrested, I that's the thing. I I I haven't thought every plot point through to see how this would track. That's just an yeah, idea yeah. that I had that was spawned by watching Room Two Thirty Seven. Sure, yeah. And now two hours later, recording this podcast. Because <laughs> uh, before that happened. I was like, as soon as she locked him in the closet, I'm like, okay, game over. Yeah, game fucking over. And uh, it was. How is this movie going to get us to the end game that I know? Because I know at one point he chops his way through the door, <laughs> and you were and like, he chases. If him. she opens this fucking door, and I'm I, gonna nope out. I was because yeah. like I feel like that this <laughs> Shelley Duvall, and I don't know that it's her fault. Although right, I, I will her. say that I've yet to see her in anything good. Keep in mind, I haven't seen almost any. Woody Have you Allen seen movies. Popeye? Come on, no, she's she's a great. She olive looks oil. like olive oil. She's sure, perfect but olive she's oil. She's kind of terrible at everything else, and so is everything <laughs> about that movie. Um, but Robin I, Williams, great Popeye. Her character is terrible, just terrible. Uh, she's the worst kind of weak yeah. little mamby pamby. So uh, laughing I, off danger to her child. I mean, I you know. So uh, do do you think it's necessary for that character to be like that in this story? Because well, I almost feel like Stephen if King would assert were, that it's not because he didn't write a weak-willed, you know, dish rag, borderline mentally incompetent. But he character. also had a 500-page book to do the same things that you got to do in a two-hour movie. So did two, two that? So movie. what? Knocking her in the head and, and taking about 50 IQ points off of her. How did that simplify things? Well, a shorthand for why would a woman like this be with a horrible man like this? Like if she were a strong-willed woman, I wouldn't buy that she could be with a woman. Or That's be not a with tragedy. A like, like I feel like a tragedy is, and and also like I don't think that Jack was the person she he is now when they got married. Especially if you buy the supernatural, malevolent force theory. Although, you know, he was a shitty person and an alcoholic that you mm-hmm. know dislocated his son's shoulder well before he got into yeah. the throes of the the hotel. Um, yeah, that's part of the reason I say, like, the hotel preys on these types of people. I feel like the real psychological dread that Stephen King talks about in his book that's missing is this. So, like, Stephen King, I think... I, I Do we have anything else to say about Shelley Duvall other than she's probably the worst part of the, the movie? Like, uh, it's, it's a testament to... I, I agree to, with that, but I don't it's think a, she's necessarily absolutely horrible. No, and it's a <laughs> testament to the rest of the movie that I still felt genuine dread and concern for her and her son like as i was like god have you really never held a baseball bat (laughs) do you really not see how this door is you know locked and like i mean looking at her you get i don't think she's very physically coordinated she's like a bird woman she's like d she's like all of the bad things that charlie dennis and max say about d i don't know i guess that's that's (laughs) uh you know i gotta sit down with my sister and say look you got two daughters you need to teach them how to use a bat just in just case in they're case ever in the shining they're ever in the shining or just you know like a, a club weapon you should just be able to uh-huh. swing a bat throw a ball you know men and men goes you should be able to fucking sew make basic garment repairs cook a meal like this yep. this you, you, you grow as a person all right expand embrace the entire human experience stop uh-huh. being shuffled in your fucking cookie cookie cutter lives <laughs> um where was i going i went I on no a idea. Me either uh 
Beth in oh Stephen King. So mm-hmm. st- this Stephen King says this is one of his most personal books, or because it's about a writer. It's about stuff that he struggled with, like alcoholism. Uh, yes, it's about having a, a father who's consumed with rage and being afraid, like that. You know, you love this person and you're close to this person, but you're terrified of this person. Mm-hmm. And also the tension between, you know, this Jack character who could be a love, it could be an average guy, and he is an average writer. He's not a genius writer. Yeah, but to pursue that genius level, he turns himself into a monster. And mm-hmm. I think that's like these these seem incredibly personal to Stephen King. Absolutely. And he goes and sees this and, and also that like, you know, Jack's a very sympathetic character. Uh Wendy's a very sympathetic character. Obviously Danny's a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And the the and he spent a lot of time fleshing these people out and making them three D. And then to go to the film and see that this has essentially been boiled down to the the woman is a caricature of a character. Jack Nicholson is like full on insane from frame one. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that the 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 beats of the movie, like he said, my movie ended hot. The the hotel was burnt to the ground. This ends frozen and cold in in a maze. Like my film had a a woman who you know had a realistic view of her man and was had to make tough choices and was strong. And this you know it's like almost a mis- misogynist work. I can see where that. The more personal you feel about the work, the more conflicted you must feel when your baby is deformed by some other person. Yeah, certainly. And, and I don't I, think he's I think, I don't, none of his criticisms wrong, but it also doesn't you know take away from the fact that Shining is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Yeah, and it it also I imagine is extra. I don't know if insulting is the right word, but it's extra egregious because those themes are still in the movie, right? It's not like. He did away with those themes in the movie. Yeah. I mean, Jack's alcoholism is a real problem. Uh, there's there's a lot of that in the film. And so when you don't portray the actual characters and the nuance, uh, but you still portray the same themes in sure. those characters, I can imagine how it would be yeah. extra aggravating. And it's like, you know, I hear that there's a much more faithful adaptation that was on... He, yeah, Stephen King, you know, I, I don't know if he wrote the adaptation or what, but yeah, he made one in the 90s. But the knock on that is it's incredibly faithful to the book, but it's very poorly made and poorly yeah. acted. Uh-huh. So it's as like, are most of the Stephen King made-for-TV movies. Sure, um, and then yeah, it seems to be a pattern. You can, but I, it's like when is someone going to put this together? Like it feels like, man, Peter Jackson made The Hobbit, and it's a it's a three part. Nine-hour saga of a book that's like 185 pages. It's a masterpiece. Like I'm not even making this up. The la- the, the the whole last movie is like 20 mm. pages in the book. I, it's I mean, in, it's insane. I I turn on the last movie and I shut it off 10 minutes in. But th- that film bullshit. makes like it's it's terrible and it makes like 600 million. Why can't you do a three-part The Shining adaptation and go full on like this? This you know part right. Act One, Act Two, Act Three, movie, movie, movie. Like it probably wouldn't make as much money, but it also doesn't yeah. seem like it'd be super expensive to make either. Yeah, no, I I can imagine. Uh, g- give it the same love, the same loving treatment. Yeah, right, that but, the Lord of the Rings was given. Yeah, I think that would go. Or if like you know you don't want to take the risk and put it on here's a big the screen, thing. Why though. can't this be H? Why can't HBO or somebody like that? Yeah, go to bat and do an incredibly faithful adaptation of something that also is extremely well done. I don't know if you can do it with The Shining because The Shining in pop culture is the movie now. 
Like it's almost been yeah. taken away from Stephen Which King. Which also is probably another to reason it pisses degree. him off. Oh, I, I can imagine. Uh, he doesn't see it as faithful to his work, and now it's kind of become the definition of what that thing is. Yeah. I don't know that you can read. I don't know that you can do a Shining adaptation from the books anymore. It's hard to say. I've seen like people just wouldn't get it. They'd be like, "This is not The Shining." I don't understand. I've this. seen serious things be remade ironically. I've seen ironical things be made seriously. I've seen the, the definitive version of this that then gets made. I mean, sure. Who the hell knows? You could redo it. I just I don't know that people would like it. They uh, wouldn't understand it. Yeah, and there's also like every once in a while, it's like uh, it seems like the rage now is for uh america to pillage the rest of the world's inspiration like the girl with the dragon tattoo it's like everyone says the sure. swedish version's better the americanized uh, thumb hunger uh, games yeah we're about yeah. to see it happen with uh, animal kingdom mm-hmm. you know it's like a really interesting art house australian film is being adapted into a television show oh boy <laughs> yeah yeah but every once in a while you get one like at most a lot well this might be controversial but i've heard a lot of people say that the american version of the office yeah. Once it went into its, it, it ceased becoming derivative and it kind of became uh-huh. its own product and its own property and it kind of took its own spin on things. Every once in a while you get something like that. So I don't know sure. if you. I like them both for The Office. Yeah. Cause the, the thing is that the, I was kind of, I understood what Steven is saying because I honestly feel like that, that Kubrick made this film suspenseful and terrifying visually, almost fighting with a hand tied behind his back because some of that stuff that he's, that 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 he kind of gave short shrift to like this this fear of mediocrity the mm-hmm. what it's like to struggle with addiction the yeah. the terror we talked about of a father towards his abusive uh, or a son towards his abusive father that stuff really works and is really effective and to kind of dispense with that for more of the you know evil place and cabin fever thing is risky thing, but it worked i i don't know that he did i think he just didn't br- i just don't think he was as blatant about it like I, I think Kubrick well, works on another level where it's not like you see, you know, Jack beating his kid or or anything like that. He wants to hint at these things and he wants to let you understand them almost in on a like subconscious, intuitive level. Whereas most filmmakers will go all out and just spell it out on the screen. And I think I don't know. To me, that's a little more interesting. Hmm. And it's one of the things that makes The Shining so good is that. Not all of this stuff is directly spelled out, right? It's not like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or... But also makes Jack like a less compelling character because there is literally no side to him. Like, there's no point where you can see, like, oh, man, they're, like, you know, with, like, some things with, like, Breaking you Bad do have to read or Mad Men, it's like, yeah. oh, there before the grace of God go I. I never in a million years going to do something like Jack did in this movie. No, or of course not. feel tempted. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you if you talk about the fact that this, you know, his father was even worse and that he's got an alcohol problem and he's it's like, yeah, I've been afraid of being mediocre. I still am. I've been afraid of like I think that's all in a, there. a vicious temper. It's just I, it is. It's, it, it's, it's somewhat in a way that lines, doesn't though. make you engage or, or sympathize or understand Jack's point of view at all. So that well, he's also a raging asshole and that doesn't help. Him. But this, see, that's yeah. the thing. Like there is that's the thing. This is a horror movie, but there's no tragedy in it. Whereas I feel like, again, I haven't read the book, but when mm-hmm. I hear Stephen King talk about it, yeah. it is a Greek tragedy as much as it's a horror film or a horror book. It's true. I, that, mean, I guess I, I see the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I see that scene. I see some of those things in that scene, mm-hmm. right? Like, whereas 
you can you can be forgiven for mistaking it for pure horror. Mm. Like, oh my god, this guy has clearly gone insane. We're all in danger. Listen to that fucking soundtrack, mm-hmm. and you know it. Uh, I also read into it like Jack is tormented by his own failures. Yeah. Whereas I, I don't know that a lot of people are thinking about it. Like, certainly Kubrick's thinking about it on that level, but mm. are the people watching the movie? I don't know. I thought it was interesting. There's a lot of really cool... Now, now that I've seen this movie, it's kind of like seeing Casablanca, and you're like, you look around a pop culture <laughs> landscape, you're like, oh, or Citizen Kane. You're like, oh, man, yeah, this movie, you can see that this DNA in many other movies. And I saw, yeah. like, uh, you know, uh, something Ginny wanted me to mention, and I actually picked up when we were watching organically, and I'm like, man, that axe looks exactly like the axe that the cousins used in Breaking Bad, season three of Breaking Bad. Chromed out. Yeah, and it's an intentional homage by Villigan. Because if you remember the first time the cousins kill somebody, it's that unusually good uh, uh, reservation officer. Mm -hmm. And as he's calling in to dispatch, he says, KDK-12 to dispatch. (laughs) That is the call sign that Wendy uses from the lodge. Okay. And then he gets the Chromax right into the chest. It's a... It's a brilliant homage. Huh. And, I had no idea. And our, so our pal Arya from um, uh, Seriable, the, uh-huh. the website, uh, he did a whole. He's done a lot of comparisons to like shots and angles from The Shining and The White House, and like the bathroom scenes and stuff like that. There's some really uh, very reminiscent shots of, of of him lifting some of that visual imagery. But yeah, and also Jurassic Park. Sure. Like Danny uh, shutting himself in that little steel door thing is Spielberg just shamelessly yeah. rips off that whole scene. Mm-hmm. Only it's a Velociraptor instead of your crazy father. Yeah, which is that more or less terrifying? Like I, I feel like I feel like know, being ripped honestly. apart by a Velociraptor is terrifying, but having your own father being the thing that rips apart that that yeah. adds a, a sad and tragic element that makes it even worse. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think they're both and yeah, that, equally as scary. That him stalking his son through the maze and calling like I just like I couldn't get over it, man. Like even knowing yeah. how this I wish I could go I was, back and mind wipe myself because I mentioned as the credits were rolling, I was like the one thing I surprised is I didn't find that film very scary. You know, like Jesus, when I first saw it, I was yeah. shitting my pants. I I was ter- that's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. But there's like some things like you can't you can't wait till you're thirty nine to go to Disney World for the first time. Right. Yeah. And some of the impact the teacups of the film, just don't have the same effect. Some of the it, magic mountains is sure, not going to do it for Pot you when Center. you've ridden the beast or the vortex. Yeah, the the nose on the animatronic Michael Jackson's falling off, and <laughs> maybe that's just realism. Uh-huh. But I, yeah, like I feel like there are some movie experiences that pop culture kind of ruins, and also, you know, growing up and seeing. The Conjuring and, and Paranormal Activities and Poltergeist and and, and uh, uh, what's the Exorcist? What's the movie yeah. about the exorcisms? Oh, the Exorcist. <laughs> no, that the Exorcist kind of, is in that pantheon. I mean, that's yeah. But I'm saying like I wait. I fucked up by being a horror pussy yeah. all my life, and now these classics don't have the 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 real terror for me. Right. But having said that, the psychological stuff still fucking works. Him chasing his thing. son through that yeah. snow bound hedge maze is incredible yeah and and just the idea that oh my god i'm leaving these footprints behind me 
this is what he's going to use to track me. I'm kind of sealing my own fate but here. But it also like, shows how smart, like, and I bought the yeah. kid because I'm like, oh, man, this is terrible because this kid, like, you know, seven-year-old is not going to be smart enough to think I'm leaving tracks. I need to do. Yeah. But then Danny does. And I'm like, oh, he's like that 1% kid that can that they can actually Or maybe Tony's out. telling him, like, you're not really sure entirely sure. Uh, how much of Tony or Danny is present. But Tony is, given so moment. what do you think? I, I thought Tony is just... Tony is the anthropomorphized uh-huh. shining. Like, he, this little kid gets these insights from the future and on things that are going to happen. He doesn't understand where they're coming from, so he internalizes yeah. and says, this is a little boy that lives inside my head, essentially. Yeah, and I think I think it's all the... All of the supernatural and damaged parts of of Danny. Because I think there's also a lot of like abuse tied up in, in Tony. Okay. Um, but the other thing th- that I wanted to talk about real briefly is a lot of people can be forgiven for thinking that Jack is somehow actually drinking again oh, um, no, during it's... this film. I, I know. I just want to explain, like, this is in my opinion, the hotel's influence on him, right? Like, he is literally imbibing the vibes that the hotel is putting out. There is no booze. He never touches a drop while he's there. Let me ask you this. Yeah. If he turns down the ghost butler's offer of the free drink and just walks away, he's still alive, right? I Probably. Probably, but that's yeah. kind of like a test. Yeah, it's the symbolic gesture of him giving himself like over to the hotel. You've been seduced the whole time. This yeah. is this is you slaughtering all the younglings in the Jedi Council chambers. Yeah. This is your fall to the dark side. Uh-huh. And then his face, Jesus Christ, says it all. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Room 237 because I'm kind of pissed with you. The movie or the, the room movie. itself? Okay. Because you were so dismissive of this yesterday. Man, the only eighty percent of that movie. Hold fuck on, it. hold on. The only reason I saw <laughs> it is because I'm like I've had a fiduciary responsibility, and also you fuckers don't think you're going to get away with this all the time just because you're going to slip me a whole bunch of documentaries with your favorite movie. Doesn't oh yeah, mean watch it. You haven't even seen Room Two Seventeen. <laughs> um, but I'm like, oh, you're so like I, I felt like we had a good five minute conversation because I can just be like, and I we can still have this because like. Yes. If I would have told you with no information, which of Jim and Aaron do you think liked Room 237 and which hated it? I think <laughs> if you've listened to our The Leftovers podcast, if you listen to our True Detective, you'd be like, oh, Jim's the guy that hates it. Sure. You'd be right. Uh, but I felt like you're saying 80-20 crazy to insightful. I thought it was more like 80-20 insightful to crazy. Really? Like really, I mean, I guess I don't remember how long they spend on some of these theories. But. Because there's like the the only one that I thought was just stupid was the the one that predicates you believing that the moon landing footage was ho- and he's it's, this guy's got some horse ass. I'm not saying we didn't go to the moon. I'm just saying that all the footage we brought back from the moon is clearly faked. What's the purpose of faking footage if you actually dude, go? Dude, dude, there's a whole mythology of this stuff. I and know, I'm just I saying know. that, like, I'm it's not going to get into it. Bullshit. I'm because you all can. That is utter. If bullshit. you believe in the moon landing hoax, uh, presumably you know how to Google search, and every single argument has been rebutted with tons of information. Right. At this point, I feel like if you want to be a moon hoax denier, then we should start a government program. Where we send Buzz Aldrin to people who deny the moon hoax, and he uh-huh. just punches him. He knocks on the door. They say hello, <laughs> and he punches him in the face. Are you uh, Joseph Cobblepot? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. My nose. Why? Yeah. I and went to the moon, off. motherfucker. Boom. And that's it. That should happen. <laughs> and if it costs us a trillion dollars, it's money well spent. Yes. All that stuff is full on crazy. 
There's okay. a, there's more than just the moon landing. Because here, this, and, and then there's the thing is like when I here's how it, some people have asked me this. Aaron, like, how do you you know essentially learn new things, or how do you decide when you're presented with a fact whether to believe it or not? Yeah. I always go for the most easily verifiable fact first. And I'll okay. give two examples in this film because I spent two hours watching and two hours researching interspersed. This guy said, because uh, I'm listening, I'm like, oh, Jesus, moon hoax. But like, maybe he actually has something that grounds in reality. And he says, room 237, uh, the moon is 237,000 miles from Earth if you take its orbital average. And at first I'm like, orbital average? Well, this is a bunch of shit. <laughs> Sure. And this is this is Stanley Kubrick saying that you know giving you a clue that this is about the moon launch, and also he's wearing an Apollo Eleven sweater and all this stuff. I looked it up. The moon's average orbital distance is like is not like it's two hundred and thirty eight thousand eight hundred miles. So that if you want to round like down, it's two thirty eight. If you round up, it's two thirty nine. It's not two thirty seven. And no, 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 I'm not going to let him be off by two when he's making this assertion. Yeah, that's stupid. Yeah. On the other hand, this one guy's talking about how this was a sideways approach to Stanley Kubrick's horror of dealing with the uh, the uh, Holocaust, and he made a bunch of claims, but one of the obvious, again, I'm looking for the most easily verifiable or falsifiable fact. He says, you know, 1942, or maybe it's 41, he said there's a person wearing a prominent sports jersey with this number early on in the film, which is what you'd expect if someone's establishing a theme, mm-hmm. and he says that that's the year that the Nazis began the Holocaust. And I'm like, well, that's a bold claim because that's pretty late in the war. I looked it up, and no joke, the first train full of gypsies and Jews left the station in, like, January 12th of 1942. Now, okay, that seems can, real late. It feels You can argue when did the Holocaust start. Did the Holocaust start when yeah. the Jews became forced to push in the ghettos? Did the Holocaust start when started Nazis started euthanizing uh, sure. retarded children and mentally and, and physically disabled hmm. children? And honestly... I got super bummed out because I mine new depths of Nazi depravity. Like they're pretty terrible. The Nazis are the perfect villain because you want you want stupid shit they did, they did stupid shit. You want evil stuff they did, they did evil shit. You want they did evil stuff to people that weren't like them and they did evil stuff to people that were like them. They're just I feel like evil. at some point if you're going to be evil, just commit to it. Yeah. Well, go, and they go did. full on evil, yeah. They did. Okay. Who knows what heights they could have gotten to if it wasn't for the, you know, uh the the allied forces meeting like hammer and anvil in, in Berlin. But Again, he made that claim, and I'm like, all right, well, that actually checks out. So I yeah. start taking his theory more seriously, and then I look at the next most verifiable fact. What? I don't know that he intended that, but the theory That's does the hold together. But but what is the theory? Like, what is it trying to say about the movie or its subject? Like, why? where does it connect to the movie? That's the thing where I kind of throw my hands up on all these, like, oh, look at these fucking things in the background, and here's a thematic thing it could be. Well where where else in the movie do we see those themes? And I think there are some verifiable, or I don't know if verifiable is the right word, but some things that have a lot more credence with me given what I see in the Shall movie. Shall we talk about the Native American dialogue. one? Because I know you want to talk about it. Uh, well, so I don't remember exactly how it connects, but I know there are a lot of Native American references in this movie, a sure. shitload. I sure. mean, from the hotel being built on an Indian burial ground to... 90% the of the decorations sure. in this fucking hotel to cans of 
tomato sauce Calumet, or something. That, that's Calumet. A, that's a word for peace pipe. In, in the pantry with the Native American head on it. like And also, like, so there's some interesting... And again, you got to keep in mind that, like, postmodern literature criticism, it doesn't matter whether Stanley Kubrick did intend for this stuff. Now, I think this is where you and I disagree. I don't think you give a shit about meanings that the author didn't actually intentionally put in there. Where yeah, because I, those aren't for me, right? Like... Like you're saying, if it's not authorial intent and I'm not reading those things into it, then it means nothing. But I feel like by enlightening yourself to these meanings, you can, by proxy, get some of that extra emotional weight that when you watch it for future times, it's another layer to appreciate the film on. Whereas if you just like, yeah, after the fact, you can go um, educate yourself. But his like, he's like, you know, this Calumet um, can. Is, it represents like you know the the honest discourse between Native Americans and settlers in the old times. Like you know, uh, obviously there was uh, some degree of uh, peace and and uh, sharing, and we've all heard a Pilgrim story in the first Thanksgiving, and then it led to the wholesale. I mean, you want to talk Holocaust? When's the last time you know, like yeah. uh, like uh, Chris Rock says, you know, you want to know what racial groups got it worse in America? Native Americans, because when's the last time you saw two of them together? When's the last time you saw two Indians? When's the last time you saw two Indians just chilling out of Denny's? New yeah. Mexico. Unless yeah. you're within five miles of a fucking Indian reservation, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where we pin these people in, then uh, yeah, you're probably not seeing them. Uh, we and and the the cotton was full of them once upon a time. Yes, sure. Fucking cut them down like so many redwood. No, certainly it's a but, horrible, but yeah. When when sin. Danny and Dick are talking to each other and having an honest conversation as equals, the Calumet peace pipe is right up, uh, over their heads and it's facing them, like plain facing. Later on, when Jack Nicholson is trying to fool Wendy into, well, actually, I think it's when he's having a conversation with the previous caretaker. There's like twelve cans behind him, and they're all jumbled and uneven, and their faces are not fully faced, and you can't read all the words. And he's like, "That's an example of like you know dishonest dialogue and a perversion sure. of yeah. of of peace and justice." This did I, and what makes me think that there's a point to this is that you know from Stanley Kubrick's own documentary, that I guess there shows footage of him carefully positioning cans, and the fact that he does a lot of weird stuff like. Uh, Jack Nicholson's typing his typewriter is a chair behind him. Cut over to Wendy. Cut back to Jack. Same scene. Chair's gone. Mm-hmm. And it's also like Was so much a- of this is represented visually. Yes. And not through like actual dialogue aside from, you know, this being bur- built on a burial ground. Yeah. Uh, how much of that was in the book? Because if, it, if it's not in the book at all. And he takes it to the screen. He says, here are the visual images I'm going to portray. I can yeah. see that being a Kubrick thing. Yeah. Like, I've got to take the story and create it on screen. Yeah. And here's something I'm going to infuse in it. And a lot of people say, well, those are just continuity er- errors. But when you see, like, nine of the same type of continuity exactly, errors, yeah. I say, no, that's an intentional choice. Yeah. But because you've got this guy who's, by all accounts, is like a near genius level intellect and filmmaker, uh, who yeah. we know has obsessive detail and obsessive design. Like, he sent uh, three set designers to the hotel and they stayed there for three months taking pictures and making measurements mm-hmm. and then doing research into native American culture and the particular tribes, which doesn't really make it to the screen except for the artwork and all how, that stuff. How do we know that? What, where's that? From? That was, that was asserted in the documentary, which okay. I'm assuming is from, I mean, I, 
some of the like that, that's the thing. Like if if I would want to, I would want to look that up because I know he did send people around to take photos of different hotels. Right, but, but I guess I'd they never... stayed. I don't know. So I, I'm not mm. asserting. Def- I'm just saying what the the, the document said, and, and yeah, I'll yeah, tell yeah. you whether I I spent a lot of time researching some claims. That claim was nebulous enough. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to understand that within five minute Google search. So sure, sure, whatever. But what well, my point is, we know this guy's got excessive attention to detail and a lot of pre planning. So the line between what is ridiculous and what is intentional yeah. is a lot further than you would dealing with a Jason Lynn. Yes, and that's why that's why I brought up you know Christopher Nolan and yes. and Stanley Kubrick earlier and giving them a little more leeway to do their thing, right? Because I know they're doing a thing. Yeah, uh, and I think the, the you know the Indian the the Native American stuff is one of the more compelling arguments in that film in right. Room Two Thirty Seven. Uh, can can I just say the title of that film, Room Two Thirty Seven? He called it Room Two Thirty Seven, unlike Room Two Seventeen in the book, because the hotel owners came to him and were like, "We don't want people staying in this actual room. Can you please?" So, do you it? know this? The this is another assertion from the documentary that the guy fact checked that, and there is no Room Two Thirty Seven at the Astoria. Yes, and they did that specifically no, I'm sorry, because I'm sorry. I'm sorry, there is no Room Two Seventeen. Oh, I got it the backwards. That's the bombshell. That's the part where okay. the, the jury's supposed to go whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, uh, no, there is no two. So Kubrick lied. Now again, if this is accurate, and I haven't Pot- done the research, sure. But if he lied about that, then that makes it. a But lot it still more interesting. doesn't. Why? Because then it still doesn't connect to the moon landing stuff, and that's the connection they're no, trying no, no, to make. No, right? no, this like, guy is a different. I think it's a different guy than the moon landing. Because I started remembering the moon landing guy's voice and mentally dismissing everything he was saying. Sure, sure. But what is what is the two thirty seven about then? Like that was the only connection I saw. No, there's was a couple to the more. Moon landing one, right? There's a couple more. Really? Yeah. But I don't also, know. I, I tend to also two thirty seven was two thirty seven was the nexus of when things went wrong in the movie. Like that's mm-hmm. when Danny got the the you know went in there, and that's when he got choked by the thing, and that's when Jack Nicholson went in and got seduced by the witch, and that's like two, I think calling it Room Two Thirty Seven. That's the one where ominously Dick says, "There's nothing in there, nothing you need." Like yeah. it's the central mystery of the Stay film. Out. So sure, yeah. I, I just like if you're predicating a theory on the number itself. That's that's different than just saying like there's something bad in two thirty seven and that two thirty seven is a number a, significant unto itself. You I, gotta you gotta have a title for it. I, but there was at least yeah, one yeah, other yeah, theory yeah. That, that dealt with the two thirty seven. There was I okay. know forty two was a significant number because that was the kind of the Holocaust. Uh, there was a thirteen that, that someone said was significant for some reason. I don't know, but the point is. With Kubrick, who's to say what is legit and what is bullshit? Because, you know, like, I remember in the last 10, 15 minutes, they talked about this, like authorial intent I mean, each versus... person is individually, I guess. Well, but but the guy said, you know, a lot of people like, you know, when you get in these crazy theories, people are like, why would Kubrick do that? And he's like, but I always ask, why would Joyce write Finnegan's Wake? You know, why would uh, why, why would William is. Faulkner write The Sound and the Fear? Why do you okay. write these purely experimental, crazy works of fiction? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't an auteur like Stephen Kubrick occasionally just do some crazy shit for his own amusement? Like, those guys didn't give a shit if you got their stuff or not. They just put it out there. And who knows if half the stuff that people talk about is intentional. Maybe they're just stringing up gobbledygook and nonsense. But what if they're not? And that's the thing that I think have... There's so much real depth there that you could mine stuff out. Uh, and the other thing I thought was interesting 
is like in a hundred years with this way society will be, we might see the shining in a completely different light that we can't conceive of seeing it now. Um, Another thought thought I thought was really cool is the filmmaker that talked about that. He read on one theory website that you have to, that, that the shining is designed to be thought of in forwards and backwards terms because of all the shots in the mirror. Like there's an establishing shot of Jack Nicholson that you zoom out and then you realize you're looking at a mirror and it kind of fucks with you momentarily. There's a and scene in, where in the... 237, they overlay the movie forward and backward on itself. Yes. And, and it has some, some strangely, uh, com- uh dis- uh, unsettling. It's images, kind of like, when, but it, nothing when like you sync up dark side of the moon with, the, with right. I, with that, Wizard of Oz, there's no fucking sure. way they intended that to happen. Yes. But the shot of Jack Nicholson, where it's superimposed over the hallway uh, and the girls, and and the blood is running. It looks like he's wearing like clown makeup with blood running out of his eyes. I mean, that's a beautiful image, and I'm glad I saw it. I don't give a shit if it's I don't okay. give a shit if it's critically valid or not. Yeah. I want to go out on the internet and find that version and watch the whole thing because some of the stuff it's like it doesn't mean anything. It, 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 yeah. But it's like watch looking at a painting or reading a poem. It, it's it mean, art. It means man. what it means what you bring to it. Much it's, like it's the hotel, a mash. Right? It's a transformative work. It's a mashup. And yeah. it's no more or less valid than fucking the Grey album by Dead Mouse. It's whatever. Sure. So can we talk about the the abuse theories? Yes, because they love are to. they are many and they are varied, and there is a lot of supporting evidence I think for them. Uh, you mentioned just a m- few minutes ago uh, Danny's strangulation or beating about the neck. I don't know exactly what it is, but he comes back with he got bruises. Throttled, yeah, yeah, something happened to his neck, uh, and we. We see him going into room 237, and then next we see of him, he's got these these wounds, right? Sure. Um, but we also see moments before he goes into room 237, him sneaking into his dad's, into the apartment to try and get his fire truck. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of theories going around, which I personally like, because I think this is, you know, when, when I'm talking about reading between the lines with, with Jack as an abuser and Jack as a failure of a writer... These are the type of things I'm talking about, where where Danny comes in and he's he's trying to get his fire truck. Jack calls him over and and you know cradles him for a while. Mm-hmm. Says and Danny's like, "Would you ever do anything to hurt me or or my mom?" Yeah, and he's like, "No, of course not." I I almost think you can you can read the next scene of him going into room two thirty seven mm-hmm. as figurative, okay, as not literal. Like no one ever goes into room two thirty seven. Uh, and room 237 is more a bad place within these people. It's like the dark side cave on Dagobah. Exactly. Yeah. And and whether Luke goes into it figuratively or literally, or it doesn't matter. Whether he's wearing his weapons or not. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I kind of like that theory. Yeah. And I think that's kind of on the level with Kubrick, <laughs> where mm-hmm. he thinks. Um, and if you're trying to get those kind of subliminal and just under the surface messages into this movie, that might be a way he's doing it. See, I was, I, I because the, she... the implication there is that he goes and, and Jack is very angry about Danny waking him up uh-huh. and that he, he abuses him physically, potentially in the past has abused him sexually. There's 
a yeah, lot of stuff. Tied I thought up you were going to go with the sexual abuse angle because I actually come. I, so I there's came more. Across that yes. from and I I couldn't follow. There's much it. more. I thought it was in, is interesting, but I couldn't follow it. Well, there's a lot of stuff with it. bears. Um, there's a lot of stuff with cartoons in this, oh, shit. and it's a recurring theme. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a bizarre scene in this film. Okay, an Lots absolutely fucking what the fuck kind of moment where Shelley Duvall sees this man in a bear costume or a dog fil- costume. I'm I'm pretty sure it's okay. a bear filleting some guy in a bedroom. Yeah. Like after she realizes, oh my god, Jack has gone full on crazy. Sure. Uh, we're in danger. She yep. spins around. She sees that. Uh huh. There's a lot of mention early on when the psychiatrist is, or the doctor or whatever is talking to Danny. Uh, like she says, who who is um, Tony? Yeah. Is it one of your animals? And she's he's like, no, he lives inside my mouth. Uh. There are a lot of mentions of bears in cartoons. There are bears in the background in mm-hmm. pictures. There are bears on Danny's bed. Um, w- one of his animals is a bear, one of his stuffed animals. Uh, you get the... I could see a line being drawn from these bears to a trauma with his father. Okay. And, and obviously, trauma with his father is a big part of this, right? Sure. Like, there, there's the literal story of him ripping his arms out of his sockets, mm-hmm. like, like a fucking gundark like chewy on the gundarks right 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 uh i i think there's something there i think i think it's more than meets the eye there how many star wars references can we work into more. the shining podcast a lot like, more probably yeah uh <laughs> yeah because that's the one thing like i that other scene i don't know what else it's supposed to mean right it makes no because it's completely out of context Cause a lot of the other stuff like you know when it flashes into uh, a haunted mansion briefly where it's like you look into the ballroom and it's all cobwebs and skeletons like right. that doesn't really make sense but it also kind of does and it's like well this is a haunted mansion story on one level but mm-hmm. the the bear giving the guy a blowjob is just straight up crazy and it invites you to ask what does that mean it why is that something. shot in the movie or it is it just to something, something to shock and to confuse i don't because, think so i can't imagine that well it's not there for a purpose i agree with you but let me play internet advocate and say that so much of this film is set up to make you feel uneasy and weird like the, for the fact that like you go into the guy who runs the place's office they very mm-hmm. carefully established this in one shot that jack nicholson's walking down this hallway in the middle of the hotel he walks in this guy's office and there's a there's a window behind him there's streaming outside sunlight into how the fuck does that room exist when sure. they when and there's another the hotel layout thing. is an impossibility physical impossibility like when the butler's uh, spills the cocktail on him and they go into the bathroom the way that bathroom's constructed is when he's cleaning him off is spatially the exact same place that was spilled upon because what? the bat yeah when he what they go mean? around the hallway to the bathroom the bathroom's constructed do they go and take another turn and oh, when they, they walk just down do, like, the bathroom right hand turn that that thing would literally be laid right on top and they're okay. back in a ballroom i mean again. there are, there are a million another of one those inconsistencies. Is their lot- apartment like everything is sure fucked. but here's another the, oh, i thought one the coolest one um, is when they're walking across the driveway of the hotel when you first, in this exterior shot, there's a car kind of rushing at them. Uh, and just as we get to the point where like, oh my God, it's going to hit them, it switches to another POV and that car's gone. Like, and I don't, okay. you know, I didn't, certainly didn't notice this the first time I watched it. The maze it. can't be out there where it, where it's shown. Like, but there's a lot of things so that are, things. and I picked up on some of them. I didn't pick up on other, up on others. And so, People say, and I want to accept this assertion as truth, is that much like George Lucas with the Campbell, um, 
you know, Jungian's uh, archetype and the myth of legend and all that stuff that Stanley Kubrick is fascinated by the concept of subliminal av- subliminal advertising and subliminal messages. Yeah. Now, you can believe that's junk science or not. What you got to ask yourself is, did Stanley Kubrick believe in it? Because if he did, sure. I feel like there's a lot of evidence where he was doing things subliminally. Like you walk into one meat locker and then when you walk out of it, it's on the one on the other side of the hallway. Yeah. And there's just a lot of that spatial just where like I mean, I think it's just meant to disorient, much yes. like the maze outside, right? Like, so why do you think that the bear also giving por- the guy a blowjob can't just be like, Oh shit, I'm just gonna throw images at the viewer and and just to unsettle them? Because he he mostly, as far as I can tell, sticks to spatial disorientation, right? He doesn't go for total confusion. Like he still wants to get his theme across, his his plot, but do you remember the scene in the room 237 where the owner of the hotel or the the administrator is walking behind the desk to shake hands with Jack Nicholson and his desk organizer lines up to make him look like as he's shaking his hand he's got an erect giant he's got an erect penis pointing right at Jack Nicholson? No. Like I totally saw that but then is the that same guy something that they're talking about subliminal stuff in the movie. And, like, the carpets are okay. arguably look like penises entering a vagina, which I also bought. But then he gets to the end, and he's like, look at this cloud formation. It looks exactly like Stanley Kubrick. I'm like, fuck you, man. No, no, it doesn't. It looks like the faked moon landing. And then there's other stuff like the Minotaur. Like, uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. I, it maze. would make sense. I mean, that's, that's an easy sure, allegory to but draw, I didn't, right? I didn't get easy the... Easy connection to make. You know, she's, she makes a point. She's like, well, look at this skiing poster. They make it a big point that there's no skiing in this area, and they got a skiing poster in this hotel. But look at the way they filmed it. The guy looks like a minotaur because, you know, he got the bent legs and the weird shapes, and it's a silhouette. Hmm. But then he's like, she's finding minotaurs in a way Jack Nicholson's face look. And I'm like, right. that's where it's like where the line between insightful and crazy your mileage yeah. may vary. And I, I have that relationship with that movie. I, at some point, threw my hands up and said, yep. you know what? You should have stuck to the good stuff because this is all bullshit. And it kind of tainted the rest of it for me, too. But I bet the thing and is, I, is like that's... I realize that's not fair. If they made it for everybody, or if they made it for you... You're right. There's yeah. a lot of people would be like, oh, man, they left a lot on the table. And if, you know, I'm sure there's still... Because there's a lot of stuff I thought was interesting. Like, Jack Nicholson is openly reading a Playgirl magazine in the lobby of the hotel. Yeah. You can't really see that unless you, like, zoom in on it and look at it. But that's something that's... I, and then I, they went and they looked at the cover of that magazine. And they said, oh, one of the articles about incest. Yes. And why families make love to each other. Sure, or, sure. So there's a lot of abuse like, that's stuff like the, tied up in that. You know, and you, we, we went through the National Geographic stuff with the leftovers. Sure. Where it's yeah. like, it means something. Uh, but you're not supposed to notice it, so that's subliminal. Did it work? I don't know. Is it cool that you put it in there? I think so. I certainly noticed all of the nude photos around sure. this hotel. And I don't know if that's just Dick being Dick. Yeah. Like, hanging <laughs> up nudies everywhere he goes. Right. You know, it's in the basement. No one will ever find it. But I thought that the missing dopey, like where there's a scene where the doctor's checking him out, you can see that there's a big dopey sticker on Danny's door. And then after he oh, has a, a vision thousand of... thousand of those things. After he has the vision of the blood and he's enlightened, the next scene, the dopey's gone. The fact that Danny, I mean, when he's talking to Dick, there's a, a literally knives like surrounding his head like a halo in the background showing that he's in imminent danger and like well, there's a I lot mean, the of animal stuff, stuff the cartoon and animal stuff is all over the place yeah i mean from from the the shack that that uh dick calls to where the his friend's gonna give him a cat 
the snow cat, whatever. Uh, there's Winnie the Pooh in Danny's yeah. room. Like yeah. that's the bear and cartoon connection. Sure. There's Roadrunner stuff, Bugs Bunny stuff. Like those connections are in fact in the movie. So like th- the stuff that, like I guess that's where I where I go. Like if you're saying that the Apollo Eleven shirt he's wearing means something, like I guess I just don't agree with the conclusion in all in all situations like yes the things they show are certainly in the movie but what do they mean and are you sure that Especially they mean those when things apollo thing was big like i i was at the cusp of that i was born in right. 76 but i remember having apollo rocket toys and having apollo mm-hmm. rocket lunch boxes and my fucking middle uh elementary school was the neil a armstrong ele- yes like, just because a kid's wearing an Apollo 11 sweater means that he was born during the middle of America's race to the moon. But then and, he's wearing like a Mickey Mouse sweater. Yeah. Kicking a football. And I'm like, well, okay, there's a lot more references to cartoons sure. here. There aren't any to the, the moon missions. Right. But and like, Other than the sweaters. I don't begrudge the guy saying that, you know, because I, I think, I don't know. Like, conspiracy theories are fun to think about, but... This guy at the end of the movie where he's talking about the government's onto him and they're monitoring him and, you know, that he's been contacted by... Like, he just starts sounding like a crazy person. Sure. Um, and certainly, I don't think Kubrick was contacted by NASA to help film uh, their moon landing scenes. I certainly don't think that he used that technology to then make 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> and I don't think, therefore, that this is a coded imp- apology to the world for fooling them. Yeah. But I was kind of interested, you know, if nothing else, I, I it caused me to look up the actual orbital distance from the moon to the Earth. So it's like, you <laughs> okay. know, I'm, I I think that you need the wingnet stuff because I think that's part of what the, the film was suggesting. This film is so deep that where is the line between, like, you're, someone might say, oh, this child yeah. abuse stuff is okay. crazy. It's just, oh, this vag- vagina cart. You guys are reading too much of it, and some people are are going to eat it up. Like you have to have the extremes of both. And I thought, I thought the last 10 minutes was a very fair job of like, you know, however you believe about authorial intent, whatever you think about the crazy theories, this movie by existing invites that kind of stuff. And it's, it's a, it's a matter of almost personal taste where you draw the line. Kind of. I, I think also like you talked about earlier, the number of occurrences, right? The lattice work that's kind of built inside the movie itself needs to be taken into account like when there are 15 different references to cartoons Mm -hmm. when there are certainly obvious obvious and blatant references to abuse and and bears and those things tie in tie in together in this way where like uh, the the telling thing to me where where these cartoons and abuse tie in is when tony is just taken over uh danny Mm -hmm. and he's sitting there zoned out staring at these cartoons like sure his mom's trying to talk to him. He's non-responsive. Like all of those things kind of come together in that moment for me. Yeah. And and I feel like there is a framework constructed in the movie, whereas so many of the other theories take like a thing or two. And that's why I give more credence to the Native American theories because there's a lot of that stuff in the movie. Sure. 
Uh, I just think they go a little too far when they try and glom onto a couple of very small details and right. say, this means this. And that's the same, like, you run into that when people are like, oh, well, the real point of Lord of the Rings is that Sauron was the good guy and that the elves and the hobbits right. were the bad guy. And I'm like, okay, if you fully ignore half of the fucking book and the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this because of his disturbing experiences with mechanized warfare in World War One, <laughs> yeah, if you uh, ignore that, yeah, you can make that argument. Argument, and it's a fun argument to make, and but some of that's masturbation, and I don't begrudge anyone for jerking off because it feels good. Okay, uh, sure. so I I, I want to see this uh, Kubrick authorized uh, documentary. There's another book I want to read called uh, the uh, Stanley Kubrick the Magician, hmm. where it's okay. Kubrick the Magician that talks about his uh, relationship with uh, mythology and especially subliminal uh, messages. And I also mm-hmm. want to read the book, The Shining. Uh, so that's yeah. my homework. And we'll probably, I imagine that I'll talk more about this with you, maybe on lunches or cocktails or something, which is a good reason if you want to be a club I member. I mean, we haven't even touched on a lot of the theories. I know. Like, but as I, I, this is going to stick and, with me for a while, and I probably want to yeah. bounce this stuff off uh, of you. So we'll probably continue the discussion on other channels. Um, okay. But I think that's, I've said my piece on it for now. All right. Sure. You ready to you ready to leave the overlook? Yeah, we can, we can shut it down for now. All right. Uh, thanks to everyone again to commission this podcast. If you'd like to commission your own podcast, it's easy. You go to baldmove.com/shop. We have a bunch of uh, things on on the menu where you can like uh, these fine people did kick in ten bucks at a time uh, to make one of those happen, or you can go for the brass ring and have your own independent uh, podcast project and have us watch any two-ish hours of entertainment and we will do a podcast like this one have us watch barry linden or lolita yeah see that's an interesting look lolita like there's so much from barry linden's side of this that's the thing like if lolita scares me because i feel like if you check that book out or rent that or, or download it like you are on a government watch list it's a piece of art i know it is i know it is but it's also about a man sure. loving a seven-year-old girl or something like that it's sure so that's a little. It's an art about a fairly and it's disturbing a, it's subject. A fuck, and the Kubrick is making it. So uh-huh. wow. I'm, but yeah, no, I'm. I'm definitely going to see it. I'm just saying that now I'm on a list. I'm, there's a list of people to Maybe watch. So. The the watch the little either check it out of library, and I'm going to be on that list. Uh, I don't think it's a shameful list to be on. Okay. I, I don't either. People who I, enjoy hey, great cinema. Look, this is a rash, <laughs> This is a fully irrational fear. Uh, yeah, no, I don't I have it. many of them, mm-hmm. but but yeah, uh, but uh, I forget. Yeah, yeah. Commit, make us watch L- Lolita. Uh, have <laughs> make us have a really awkward conversation uh-huh. about that subject material. That would be awesome. Okay. Uh, and you can do it at baldmove.com dot com slash shop. And we will see you on the next one. See you.